WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Molly Webster. I am the senior correspondent here at Radiolab. But on this episode, I am a reporter bringing you two stories about things invading the human body. So buckle up, get ready. The first story is a story that we put out during COVID when we were doing something called dispatches. Jad and I were kind of pumping out these weekly quick episodes about the pandemic, about what was happening with the virus, things that we were learning. But even though it's a COVID story, I think it's a really interesting one because it feels really universal in that it is a story about how when a virus gets into a human body or really any body, the longer it's inside the body, the greater chance it has to mutate and to test out its offenses on the body's defenses. And so we're focusing on COVID, but the things that you hear in the story are things that can happen in HIV, with the flu, with other coronaviruses. So listen with ears wide open because it feels like a pretty universal story that was told at a very specific time. Oh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay. Okay. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Webster, are you there? Yeah, that was amazing. You started coming. I still don't see you. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. I just wanted to play you a conversation I had with senior correspondent Molly Webster. She and I check in every Friday morning where she usually just kind of updates me on new research she's following, things she's been interested in. She told me about a few new studies that she had just read. Um, these were articles about different individual COVID patients from different spots around the world. And each paper looked at how the virus behaves inside a single human body. One, a case study from the UK, starts with a man in his 70s coming into a hospital uh, with an immune system that was already pretty low. Yeah, his immune system was low because he had uh, lymphoma uh-huh. and then was on a drug to try and keep the cancer in check, and that lowers your, Got it. your immune system. So this man in his 70s. He had a suppressed immune system, and he shows up in a hospital because of cancer stuff, and while he's there, they test him, and he's positive for SARS-CoV-2. Okay. But he seems relatively fine, and he just has like a small cough or something, and so... They send him home. And then 35 or 34 days later on day 35, he walks back into the hospital and what had been a cough for the last month had like turned into shortness of breath. And they test him again and he has coronavirus. Which most likely meant 
that uh, he had coronavirus for the whole month and couldn't get rid of it. So he tests positive for coronavirus and he has like the COVID-19 pneumonia kind of that settles into your lungs. The crackly cough thing. Yeah. You know, the gray spots on the lungs that they like identify in CT scans and stuff. Yeah. And so they check him into the hospital. And then what basically starts is just a series of trying to treat this man. At the same time, the UK is actually really good about taking samples and genetically sequencing them, as we all know, in a way that America is not doing right now. And so, um, so over the course of his time in the hospital, and he does eventually end up dying on what they say is day 102. Oh, wow. Um, over the course of that time, they sequence his virus 23 times. So basically, over the last three and a half months of this man's life, the doctors take snapshots of the virus inside him. You can think of these as um, a series of stills that capture what the virus is doing, how it is moving. You can think of them as mugshots, series of mugshots. Now, at this point, uh, this is going back a year, uh, there was really only one main version of SARS-CoV-2 that was out there, or at least in our consciousness. There weren't all of these uh, variants from South Africa or Brazil. Or the New York City variant. That There's a new one? Yeah. I did yeah, not. The New York City one is new, and now there's a new Oregon variant. Oh, snap. None of that was on our radar yet. We were just focused on the original. The original, like what I call like OG SARS-CoV-2. That was the perp that the doctors expected to see on all those mugshots. And they did see it on day one. But then when he went away and came back 34-ish days later and proceeded to get sicker and sicker in the hospital, they sequenced again. And this time they saw something different. Instead of just one COVID virus inside him. They saw pop up like little subpopulations. They saw a whole bunch of different kinds. With enough variation that they look different. Huh. What they noticed is like, oh, there's still the dominant like OG SARS-CoV-2 genetic sequence all over this body. Okay. But there's like really small, quiet, like subpopulations that are hanging around. And at the time, they were like, whoa, 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 there's all these like variations. Whoa, has this person been infected by like six different types of this virus? And they all happened to get into this person at the same time. Oh, like he somehow managed to have six different encounters with six different coronaviruses? Or like day one, he had a case and then it cleared. Yeah. And then maybe got it again. And then again and again and again. So the doctors at that point have a new thought. Maybe this isn't the same infection that he's had the whole time. Maybe these are separate viruses, entirely separate. But then they realized, no, this is one strain that got in and just keeps changing, 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 changing. In other words, what the researchers came to understand, and they weren't trying to study this, they were simply trying to save the man's life, is that these subpopulations were one virus rapidly mutating, trying out new forms inside a human body. That when you have a human body that has a compromised immune system, the COVID virus will just rapidly experiment. That the immune suppressed body is like a playground of sorts because like nothing actually shuts the virus down and it can replicate uninhibited. This one researcher said that at any point in time when you're like infected with coronavirus, you can have like at least a billion copies of the virus inside of you. One billion? One billion. And so that means that 
every time it replicates, it has a chance to like mutate, substitute, delete one little nucleotide. But I thought the whole deal with the coronavirus, I mean, you and I did a story about this, is that unlike the other RNA viruses, which are super sloppy, the coronavirus actually catches its own mistakes pretty well and doesn't mutate that much. So it doesn't actually mutate that fast, but it still does just mutate. And every time it replicates, there's a chance that a mutation can set in and hence evolution can happen, right? Because if you change part of your genetic code, you have a chance to like have new characteristics that let you survive in the world in a different way. Mm. And so if it's in the body and it's allowed to replicate a billion times with really nothing to stop it, every time it replicates, you throw the dice and something can happen. So getting back to this guy, the researchers noticed that he's got all of these different subpopulations of SARS-CoV-2 viruses, different kinds inside of him. But most of the new variants? They're not really doing much. They don't have much dominance. Like if you actually look at the numbers, I think it's something like, um, I may be making this up, but I don't think I am. But it's something like the the original genetic virus is almost at 100% dominance. And every every other little subpopulation is like less than 2%. But then she says the doctors start to give this guy treatments. Uh, so he gets to the hospital day 35. Day 41, they do a round of remdesivir. That's one of the few drug treatments available against the virus. Day 54, they do another round of remdesivir. And then on day 63, they give him convalescent plasma from a donor. And this is like the you know blood you take from the body of a person who has successfully fought off COVID-2. And you put it in a person who's struggling to mount an antibody defense system to like take the virus down. The thought is, and this is also a story we've done, uh, the antibodies in the survivor's blood will help you fight off the virus. So day 63... Guy gets infusion of plasma. And then on day 65, they give him another batch of convalescent plasma. So they're like giving treatments. And then as they're giving treatments, they're taking samples and genetically sequencing them. And what they see is that by the time they check his samples in like the 80s, like day 82 or day 81, the the different subtypes have like exploded. Really? And, And there are like very noticeable changes in the coronavirus inside his body. More on that after the break. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. What should I play? I haven't even tried this piano yet. Why don't we play a little bit of a piece that I think you might know? 
It's a new season of the Open Ears Project. I'm Terrence McKnight, here with stories from people who share the piece of classical music that guided them through some of the most important chapters in their lives. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. Today we are in Molly Webster territory. Actually, we are in the middle of a recording of her and I's weekly meeting where she was telling me about some papers that have just come out uh, that show how the SARS-CoV-2 virus behaves inside a single human body. I also just want to say before we rejoin, rejoin that conversation, God bless the man in the UK, uh, the human beings who are at the center of these case studies. Papers kept their identities secret, uh, of course. We will obviously do the same. But in a few of these cases, not all, these people passed away and they allowed doctors to study them uh, in the final months of their life so that we could all learn something about the nature of this enemy. So endless gratitude to those people. Okay, so before the break, Molly was explaining that in this, uh, this man in the UK with a compromised immune system, the doctors first noticed that uh, there were all of these variants of the coronavirus popping up, like all these different subpopulations, which were basically kept in check for a while. But then as soon as the doctors started trying to treat the patient with drugs and convalescent plasma, those subpopulations just explode. And, and there are like very noticeable changes in the coronavirus inside his body. They see like these deletions that they call, you know, deletions at 69 and 70. And then there's this other mutation at something called 796. It's very, it's very wonky, like all based on like amino acid positioning. Okay. And suddenly that, that virus variant is like dominant. Huh. And the OG SARS-CoV-2 virus variant has like become a quiet subpopulation. Weird. So, okay, help me unpack what that, yeah. I don't quite know how to, how to, how to hear that. Does that mean that, that, that the, whatever the, it was in the plasma, whatever antibody army came in from the donor, obliterated OG SARS, but it somehow allowed for this little subpopulation to just bloom? Essentially. So what they say is like, oh my gosh, we added in all of these antibodies and we've just witnessed how SARS-CoV-2 might try and get around those antibodies. So they basically witnessed evolution happening right in front of them. Yes. Is that, is that the way right. to say it? That is right. And in the example you just gave where there was a mutation in 69 or 70 or whatever it was, what does that actually do for the virus? So the, the 6970 deletion on its own makes the virus twice as efficient at, at infecting cells. Really? And they think that's because it can clamp on more tightly to your cells. And so if you have that variation, you bind more tightly, which means like when you inject your genetic material, it all gets inside and like uh, the cell can't shake you. Okay. So we're only at stage one here. So they see this scary mutation bloom in this one patient, this poor man. And then Molly says, as they kept trying to treat the man and then test him to measure the effect of those treatments they saw this kind of real-time evolution just continue and escalate. They'd see all of these different populations come and go, rise, fall. There might be two different types and they rise and fall 
together. Hmm. And then there's some where like if virus variant A is in there, D won't survive. And I have this like little part of the paper cut out. I'm just going to read it to you. Yeah, yeah. It says, patterns in the variant frequencies suggest competition between virus populations carrying different mutations. Viruses with the mutation deletion pair spike letters 796, 6970, rose to high frequency during convalescent plasma therapy, but were then outcompeted by another population in the absence of therapy. Specifically, these data are consistent with a lineage of viruses with the NSP2, I513T, and RDP, no, RDRP V157L variant, which was dominant on day 66, but was outcompeted during therapy by the mutation deletion variant, that's 796 and 6970, with the lapse in therapy, the original strain, which had acquired NSP15N1773S and the spike Y200HT240I regained dominance, followed by the emergence of a separate population with the spike W64GP330S variant. <laughs> That's like one paragraph from the paper. So, th- so those are all different like subpopulations of coronaviruses that are kind of duking it out in this one guy? Wow. In that one patient in the UK. This is just from that paper. Dang. How many different uh, corona tribes are we talking about? So there's 501Y, 796, 6970, 240I, 200H, 330S, W64G, I513T, V157L, N1773S. So something like at least 10 different populations rose and fell. Whoa. Some of them exist all over globally. Some exist in different parts of the body. And they're all having different types of battles with the Whoa. things that you're putting inside. And then they're all having different types of battles with each other. And they're seeing this in a single human. Yes, a single person. Wow. I don't know why, but this is completely blowing my mind. Well, because one of the, one of the scientists described it as like, uh, you can see a single body, a single patient as like a, a, a battleground or a training ground. Oh wow, that's if you can scary. Look, yeah, if you, I know, it's, it's like if you can look in and follow the action. It's almost like the Truman Show, but rather than us being in the Truman Show, you're looking in. You're looking into the Truman Show, like watching the world wow. change and be manipulated. And you're like, now I want to make it rain. <laughs> now, wow. now I will cause a tornado, and I'm going to see like how the world react that how this world reacts to that it's just like a whole microcosm inside one person and in that passage you read it said that the the different populations of coronavirus are competing are are, are they fighting how are they it's fighting? not exactly. fighting it's all about real estate really it's like can you get in a cell how oh. fast can you get in a cell and how quickly can you replicate in that cell if you think about the body there is a limited number of cells for the virus to infect And so if it wants to make lots of different types of itself, and I'm saying wants like it has like a wish, Mm -hmm. but if it wants to make different types of itself, all of those different variants are fighting for the same real estate. Like there's, there was, there's, there's one paper about a patient who had, had Corona, who was immune suppressed, 
had coronavirus for at least 70 days, asymptomatic. Eventually it cleared their system, but they saw the virus like mutating Mm. inside this, this one person. There's something that medicine can witness. I think it's not even like learn. It's like actually like what, what we can witness is in a sense, everything that is happening out in the wild, but like in one place, which happens to be, oh yeah, I just did a big jump. You just made a jump, which is, which is, which was where my mind was going, which was, if, if, okay. So if we, if we zoom out just a bit and we we look at this one body and we see that these virus, these variations these different populations that are rising and falling and competing for real estate. Is there anything that they are seeing in these single human cases inside of these single immunosuppressed people that is mirroring what we're seeing out in the world in terms of all the different variants that are floating around in South Africa and Brazil and all that? So that's where it gets really spinny. That's, that's where it gets really trippy is that these patients end up being like a blueprint like with them you could see what the virus might do in the future and and to break that down what they saw happen inside those bodies were the formation and creation of mutations that then appeared out in the wild six months later in like the uk variant the south african variant and the brazil variant that we're all like running scared from. Whoa. Five months before a scary virus variant showed up in the wild, they saw it inside a person. Okay, okay, okay. If they're seeing these mutations dominate in immunocompromised bodies before they dominate in the wild, does that tell them that they started in immunocompromised bodies and then got out into the wild? Well, so that's an interesting question. So, so with these specific case studies that were written up, uh-huh. whatever happened inside the body never left the body because the because the patient was in a hospital the whole time and and, and closed down. Oh, but okay. the thought now is based on two of these case studies and a few others that have come out is that probably at least the UK variant that B117 came out of an immunocompromised body because they said that variant has like eight significant mutations in it. And in order to get that in the wild, it would take many, many months. And if you were genetically sequencing, like they do very frequently in the UK, you would see the tracings of that change start to happen. Oh, interesting. You'd be like, oh, there's a change here. That's change one. There's a change here. That's change two. There's a change here. That's change three. But everyone said one day they woke up and there was a new virus with like eight significant changes, which makes them think that like that all happened in one hidden place and then like burst onto the scene. That's so funny because that's that was the the experience of consuming the news was like, oh, you know, COVID-2. And then like I remember hearing that like it doesn't mutate that much. (laughs) Okay, great. Glad to hear that. And we've got these vaccines coming in. Yay. And then suddenly, <laughs> like literally on a Tuesday, everyone's like, oh, snap, there's we've a variant. A variant. <laughs> we've got a new variant. And I'm like, wait, what? Where did that yeah, come where from? where did that come from? Well, scientists have the same reaction. And what they're saying is in these like immune suppressed patients where, you're, where you can witness the virus trying to adapt and where you can like step by step see how it interacts with each treatment you give it, 
you can actually have a clue to like how the virus might change in the future because if, if that's if, bananas if, if, that's so if, weird if, it's like seeing if, the future it is it is like this one guy called it a crystal ball another guy called it the a harbinger of like what's to come in the virus that's so, like, so I- wild yeah, the idea is at some level, the virus can change a lot of ways, but at another level, it can only change so many ways. And so if you watch it mutate like a million, two million, three million, four million, five million times inside a person's body, and you see which variants dominate, there's like a pretty good chance that like, okay, if the virus ever rolled the dice out in the wild and it landed on this mutation, this mutation would take hold and thrive. So it's very possible it's going to hit the same mutations in different places independently, and we might be able to see that in advance inside one person. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's w- what I, what I, what I'm struck by. Yeah. It's really it's it's a, it's interesting to hear this story right now. Hmm. You know, because it's it's. It's like from one moment to the next, it's really hard to know whether to feel optimistic (laughs) or pessimistic, right? Right. You know, it's like, and and kind of the story you're telling, and it's weird to like look outside and see like, oh, it's sunny, like spring is coming, (laughs) like the vaccines are rolling out. We might actually get to go have dinner with friends again. And everybody's like in this kind of like, ah, normal, normal life is returning. The story you're telling me is like, is it? virus is crafty but then maybe so are we i don't know it's weird to juxtapose what you're saying against that sense of like optimism that's out Mm. in the world because what i'm hearing is that simultaneously this virus is figuring us out and we're figuring it out yeah and maybe we're turning the corner or maybe we're just in the first chapter of a very long story you know yeah like i I, I think I keep having a having a lot of visuals like like myself and I would say my community are probably at the lowest ebb I've mm-hmm. seen them at in the last year, yeah. but also with with a whole bunch of like hope just starting to like glimmer. I keep thinking of that midnight in the garden of good and evil statue. Do you know what that is? It's like the little girl and Mm. she has her hands up by her shoulders with her palms like up to the sky. And it's like good and evil are are like weighted on each side. Mm. I feel like that feels like this moment in COVID to me where you're holding like optimism and pessimism. You're holding like hope and just like utter exhaustion. (laughs) On both shoulders. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that. That's exactly it. Senior Correspondent Molly Webster. This episode would not be possible without uh, the counsel and interviews with Ravi Gupta and Jonathan Lee. Uh, Thank you both so, so much. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. 
Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radiolab. And today, a story from our very own Molly Webster. So yeah, so today we're talking about a medical mystery. Um, a medical mystery? Yeah. Starts with a woman. Hello. Hi, I'm trying to reach Joveria, please. Named Joveria Faruqi. This is Joveria. How are oh you, Molly? She works at a hospital. At a teaching hospital in Pakistan. In Karachi. It's uh, the Al Khan University. And uh, I'm a medical doctor specialized in uh, medical microbiology. Joveria works in the hospital lab. And so when someone has an infection, she gets sent, you know, some blood or urine or something. And she tries to figure out which bug is causing the problem. So the very first month that I was in the lab. In the fall of 2014. uh, The third week of October, I found three bugs. In the blood of three different patients. Which looked Exactly the same. And like nothing she'd ever seen before. Creamy in texture. It had a whitish rim and had another ring of light brown around it. White center and and very, very white. It's sort of like when you put UV light on on white and it sort of shines Mm. with a bluish tinge. And what she saw wasn't a bacteria or a virus. It was actually... A fungus. A yeast. But beyond that, she sort of had no idea what it was. I shared it with all my friends who were working in other labs, and I asked them if they had encountered something like this. Hmm. And they all said no. But the patients were all very, very sick. Yeah, well, so uh, what happened is that we started seeing patients with fever, high white cell counts. So the three patients those samples had come from were all at the same hospital under the care of this guy. Dr. Faisal Mahmood, I'm an infectious disease specialist here at the Aachen University. And all three of them were patients in the ICU. Older patients, folks who've been in the hospital for a week or two weeks. You know, with patients like that, they definitely deal with fungal infections from time to time. So, so the symptoms were really nothing, no, nothing spectacular, nothing um, uh, weird. But when he found out that they all came down with the same mysterious fungus all at the same time? When it was identified, we're like, okay, that's, that's weird. Maybe some kind of coincidence? Uh, but, but then... While I was looking at those, I encountered yet another one. Another one popped up. Exactly the same yeast. And another one popped up. In the same hospital, but this time not from the ICU. And I thought, oh my God. Which was really strange because they had never seen this fungus before and suddenly it's popping up all over the hospital. I would have been okay if it was just one case or or two cases in a whole year. That's all right. However, to encounter them in a whole, in a cluster is alarming. You know, what, what's it doing in our hospital, behaving so angrily and killing people off? I mean, two of our patients had died by then. You know, we, we just sort of kept seeing them 
tuck, 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 tuck. Um, I think within six months, we had like 19 cases. And by then, six months in, eight of the patients had died. So this fungus is pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, the people who get it seem to have an other sicknesses as well. But but once you got it, it the mortality rate's like 20 to 60 percent. Oh, damn. And that's about the same time when um, uh, Javeria sent some strains to uh, the U.S. CDC. Javeria basically sent them an email and just said, you know, hey, will you look at this thing? And this is when the mystery of this fungus went way, way beyond one hospital in Pakistan. We were informed by colleagues in Pakistan that they were having a large outbreak. One of the guys that got that email eventually was Tom Chiller. Chief of the Mycotic Diseases Branch here at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. And he and his colleagues uh, pretty quickly identified the fungus as... Candida auris. They said it's Candida auris, and I'm like... Canada what? I was like, never heard of Canada auris before. Now, Canada is kind of a big group of fungus. Uh, it lives on our skin and in our gut and can cause yeast infections and thrush in babies. But this particular Canada was totally new. It was first isolated from an ear infection of a Japanese patient. And that was in 2009, and it was really just causing some sort of goopy goop to leak out of this woman's ear. On the skin, where we know some candida species can be, and we didn't think, honestly, much of it. Until, six years later, they hear from Joveria that this candida auris is getting into people's blood and causing serious infections. You know, horrible bloodstream infections and even death. And so we thought, okay, this thing that we saw once that we did not think was a big deal is now killing people. So what's going on? And so he started poking around and he came across reports of Canada auris outbreaks in South Korea, in India. And South Africa had described clusters. And we figured, we found out that it's, it's popping up all over the world. And actually, while looking into this... Colleagues from London were 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 talking to us about a very similar phenomena with the same organism. A hospital in London had an outbreak. To the point where they had to close their intensive care unit for a period of months. So what we saw were, were that, that, that there were essentially four different clades, for lack of a better word, that were emerging in three different continents, all about at the same time. Meaning it wasn't like it started in one place and Mm -hmm. then went to all these other places. It couldn't be explained by travel. It couldn't be explained by, you know, by the fact that, that these were in some way related, except that they were the same species of organism. They truly were emerging at around the same time in four parts of the world. So the big question that arises out of this moment is, why now? Yeah. Wait, just so I make sure I'm getting this. You have one fungus appearing in four totally different parts of the world? Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Weird. It's definitely not normal. No, it's absolutely (laughs) 
abnormal. And, you know, people around the world are trying to figure out how this happened, why it happened, what... Why is it? And we, we So this is Snigda Valbanani, and she was part of the team at the CDC that was tracking the fungus and trying to figure out what was going on. So initially we thought, like, could is it possible as some contaminated medical product or something that got distributed? Something that got distributed to these hospitals, but then they thought four different hospitals on three different continents? I mean, you, you don't expect it to be that worldwide. So it's like, scratch that. Maybe it's the way, you know, different antifungal drugs have been used around the world. Um, like we all use, you know, antifungals in our body. But the more important thing is is farms using antifungals where they spray their crops. So it's like maybe the fungus are adapting to fungicides and it's just getting stronger. So it would it be that, that the farmers are training the fungus and those fungus are then somehow getting away from the farm and into the hospitals or? Yeah. Okay. But— that still doesn't explain why it would happen in all these separate places at this one particular moment. Why now? Right. You need something that was happening to all of these fungus in different places at the same time. That's why people are looking for more of this, not just environment, but sort of a bigger picture uh, ecological analysis. Meaning what? Well, um, I just... Uh, at this point, feel like I should just start talking about dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It is, yeah, it is a little bit of a detour, but I promise it will pay off. I mean, no, it's my relationship with dinosaurs in general. So I'm yeah. like, oh, God, here we go. There is a lot of history there. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage your hosts for this evening, Jan Aberrett and Robert Krolwich! But trust me, it'll be worth it. Uh, to loop everybody in, um, about seven years ago, we did a live show called Apocalyptical that had life-size dinosaur puppets, traveled to 21 cities, super fun, but it completely broke us and we all uh, nearly died. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. true. Um, but part of that live show is a story that I reported for you guys about an asteroid that hit the Earth and put an end to the dinos. So it turns out on that day, as the fire was raging above on the surface... Somewhere in a little hole in the ground happened to be a furry little animal. And about how after the cataclysm, this mammal, small little mammal, crawled out of its little muddy burrow into a dinoless world and became the... Great, 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 Grandma, of everybody in this room, it is true, there was a creature down there. <laughs> there was a creature down there. I thought we should stop there because <laughs> we were getting away with something and I didn't want to push it too far. All of a sudden, it was just you and me. Yeah, though. Um, <laughs> oh, Miss Robert. I know. <sighs> Anyhow, uh, continue. The story goes like this. With dinosaurs out of the way, the idea is that mammals crawled out of the hole and they just inherited the Earth. So... Big reptiles out, crafty little mammals in. Yep. But there is a new idea about this fungal friend of ours, this one we've been talking about, that sort of messes this story up a little bit. So here we are in the realm of hypothesis, speculation. We don't really know what happens uh, 65 million years ago or 100 million years ago. The idea comes from this doctor and microbiologist, Arturo Casadevall, at Johns Hopkins University. And he says the first few beats of our story are all good. Right. We know that there was a catastrophe 
the asteroid hit the Yucatan, and we know that the Earth had a really bad day. And the animals that then follow are is the age of mammals. Yeah, because I feel so, like we like took down all those dinosaurs, and there was a big hole, and we're like, ah, and we <laughs> crawled out of yeah, it. Yeah, I think that people thought that, you know, because the dinosaurs were wiped out, that it created a space. This is absolutely what I think. Right. So— there is a little bit of a problem with, in my mind with that, okay. and, I, I, and, I, and, I, and I add that this is my problem. <laughs> but I'll, I'll show you what the thinking is. If you look at our world today, we still have reptiles. A crocodile-infested riverbank. We, we have alligators. This is a gaboon viper from West Africa. We have lizards. A monitor lizard is out hunting looking for the entrance to the galleries in which the mammals take shelter during the daylight hours. So clearly, some reptiles survived the catastrophe. There were rep- reptilian creatures that were living in the you know, riverbank in the same way that the mammals were and got out of the fires and the ash and came out. And it's always bothered me. How come we didn't have a second reptilian age? So you actually have a moment when either of them could have taken the crown. I thought the idea was that just we got, we got lucky. I mean, we would have had to be really lucky uh, because according to Arturo, reptiles had two big advantages over us straight out the gates. First one being reptiles, in contrast to mammals, don't need that much food. Which, you know, is great because at the time, most of the plants had burned up. The planet was covered in ash. There really wasn't that much food. And whereas mammals have to eat all the time, like reptiles can just chill for a while. So that's definitely a win for reptiles over mammals. They also reproduce a lot faster. The second one is that they just make more babies. They can spread a lot faster. Their chances of survival are greater. So Arturo's like... If the reptiles are able to do well with less food and they reproduce faster, why didn't they just take off and create a whole new world, which is uh, reptilian too? Now, his idea for why this didn't happen, why there wasn't a second reptilian age, is that there is another player on the dino-free stage. Hmm. A small, invisible, yet powerful player. And to understand, you have to know that before the asteroid hit... It was a a forested planet that uh, that was, in fact, a lot warmer than it is today. There were forests in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. The cataclysm is thought to have, have led to rapid temperatures that fell. And you also had no sun. So imagine a dark, cold world of decaying vegetation. This cataclysm was associated with a massive proliferation of fungi. And actually, if you look at, like, the right above the KT boundary, that line that demarks, you know, no meteor, meteor, dinosaur, no dinosaur. If you look right above there... It's the soil is filled with spores. No. And so everyone knows it's really well documented that Wait, it so was. Wait, so as a layer after the impact. Yes. There is a layer, one or two up, which is filled with fungi spores? Yes. That's and so he said it's very well known that there was fungus growing on things that got burnt. Fungus probably just growing because it's wet and damp and why not? So there's mold and mushrooms There's also dead bodies. There's, like, things decomposing. Which fungus like? They love, I've heard, at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it looks like you have have a couple of shrew-like creatures walking around. You've got got some alligators. 
But you've got a crap load of fungus. And you've got a crap load of fungus. Fun- fungus. Fun- yeah. Is it fungi? Fun- fungi? Fungi? <laughs> is it a fungi or is it a <laughs> fungi? Probably what, fungi? I would say whatever you like. No, probably whatever you tell no, me. No, seriously. Okay. Uh, some people pronounce it fungi. Some people pronounce fungi. Okay. Or fungi. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, whatever you call it. If you are an animal, a reptile, or a mammal, fungi can be deadly. That's right. And while reptiles could skip meals and make a bunch of babies, when it came to fending off fungi, we had an advantage. We have two pillars to protect us. One of them is that we have advanced immunity. The immune system is obviously like the kung fu fighter. It really takes up like the weight of keeping something out. But the other thing that we have that frogs don't have and the trees don't have and that insects don't have is that we're really hot relative to the environment. We're warm. We're warm-blooded. Mammals actually use some of their energy to keep their bodies warm. So if you think about us, it could be really cold outside, it could be really hot outside, but we stay at a steady, basically 98.6. Now, if you're fungi, you actually like it kind of cold. They do very well until about 30 degrees. Like 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Any hotter than that? It could denature them irreversibly. The proteins start to fall apart, the cells start to melt. And so if a post-apocalyptic fungi got into a post-apocalyptic, very warm mammal, it would die. This high temperature creates, you know, a heat barrier. And this heat barrier means that the majority of fungal species out there cannot grow or replicate inside your body because you're too warm. Our heat keeps the fungus out. You got it. If you are a reptile, you're cold-blooded. You don't have a way to keep yourself, like, steady and warm. You have to go look for ways to become warm. You know, have you ever seen lizards lie on rocks? You know, where they're just, like, out in the sun, soaking up the heat? Sure. So that will warm their bodies up. Um, But also, and I never knew this, it also will clear, like, fungus from their body. Oh. So if they're sick... Because it warms them up so much, that warmth attacks the fungus. Do they not do fevers? They don't. They can't do fevers. So oh, wow. their way of getting as hot as possible is doing that sunscape thing. Oh, I know. So he was saying that if you're a reptile and you get a fungus, but there's no sun to warm yourself in because because the apocalypse has just happened. Right. Kicked up the dust, blocked out the sun, nuclear winter. Mm-hmm. So you die— because you can't withhold the fungus. But if you're a mammal, the fungus comes, your body temperature naturally kills it. And so suddenly, his theory goes. Interesting. You have mammals filling the hole and really flourishing in a way they never did before because fungus helped them do the mammalian explosion. Right, because we, are, we went through this fungal filter, uh, well, and therefore we're not— a fungal filter at the end of the Cretaceous. Wow. Now, it gets even weirder because then Arturo decided he wanted to find out if you are warm-blooded. What was the optimal temperature by which you get the most protection against the fungi and yet you don't have to eat all the time? What is the optimal temperature to keep us from eating all the time but still give us defense? The reason we eat three meals a day is to stay warm and functioning. Mm. If we were less warm, we could eat less. No, so it's like, how little can we eat and still be protected against fungus and 
yes. stuff. That's correct. And what Aviv did— And so what Arturo did was he got together with this mathematical biologist, Aviv Bergman, and first they just gathered some numbers. What is the temperature susceptibility of fungi? Like, most fungi don't like it above 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And then he looked at the well-known formulas for calorie use. And then he asked the question, if you put these two formulas together, what is the best temperature that keeps out most fungi but doesn't require you to have to eat all the time? They basically crunched a number that had to do with, like, how many calories you need a day and, like, like just, like, the energy that would take of eating. And then keeping out pathogens. And what he found was that our temperature... 98.6. ...is that temperature that best balances protection against the fungi versus the need to to, to eat food. Whoa. Bing, bing, bing. We, we were amazed and tickled by it. And so, He's saying the reason you know, our bodies are precisely 98.6 degrees is because of fungus? Like they shaped us? To be that? My heart wants to say yes, but to caveat, he did say it could be totally correlational. Right. Obviously, he's not been able to take the temperature of any of our ancient ancestors. But, you know, it is a very interesting idea that part of being a mammal is about being good at fending off fungi. Unless part of that equation changes. So this brings us, some might say finally, back to our medical mystery, which is that Arturo wonders, what if, in light of this dino-mammal fungus detente, this thing that seems new, Candida auris, has actually been here the whole time? So say these fungi typically live outdoors in soil and on rocks, and they live in a place that's like... You know, normally 75 degrees. It's Hawaii. You want, okay. Let's say Hawaii because they're big into uh, mushrooms there. Their ideal temperature is 77 degrees. And if they go above that, they start to feel a little queasy, really start to fade, and it's a struggle. All right. Okay, so one day it's 81 degrees. And, like, the fungus are like, oh, this is hot. All fungi have the capacity to tolerate short burst of heat. But you can But what if the 81 degrees lasts for many days, not just one? A heat challenge. In that case, so, so. most of the fungus would die. But the more 81 degree days there are, the greater the chances that in the Russian roulette of evolution, one day you would get a fungus who's like, you know what? I think I feel pretty okay. And the reason that fungus probably feels that way is because it has like a mutation of some sort. That give it the capacity to survive the heat. Maybe it can even fight a little harder. Turning on some of the defense mechanisms like heat shock proteins. However it does it, this one fungus lives. And then it creates a copy of itself. And then that fungus has fungus babies. What is called a bud. And then that bud has buds. So the original cell may make 50 copies of itself before it 
basically runs out of juice to make any more. But those and so suddenly you have a whole batch of fungus that survive at 81 degrees. Yeah. Okay. And then after that, you take the survivors and you expose them to 90 degrees. Let them sweat it out, and then boom, you got a whole batch at 90 degrees. You got it. And you can just keep bumping this up degree by degree. Exactly. A string of 91 degree days, 92 degree days, 93 degree days, 94 degree days, 95 degrees, 96 degrees, 97 degrees, 98 degrees, and ultimately 98.6 degrees. Now you have the capacity to survive inside the body of a human. It reminds me of water. Like if you're water and you go from 34 to 33, you're still water. And 33 to 32, you're still water. But there's this seemingly insignificant threshold between 32 to 31 that when you cross it, you become ice. And it is this almost minute transition that Arturo thinks happened with Candida auris. That it was out there living in the environment, and it gradually adapted to be able to grow a higher temperature. And, it, and when it did that, it acquired the capacity then to cause disease in people. Essentially, it, its adaptation defeated our heat defenses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So fungus are being trained by the rising temperatures, and they're adapting along with those rising temperatures. You got it. And then, and then suddenly it's not that far from, like, you know, a, uh, that fungus in a soil getting caught on somebody's shoe who walks it into a town that then goes into a hospital. Into an IV line, it can get into a wound, and then it can colonize patients. Huh. That would explain why candida happened in all those places simultaneously. It was always in those places, being tracked in on boots into hospitals, but only now— it gets tracked in with this new ability to live in us? Yes. Wow. Japan is suffering its hottest day on record. A city and this is an interesting thing. Like, like, all of a sudden it made me think about all the headlines you see around the world. Even in India, it's rarely been this hot. About, like, the country has been experiencing a deadly heat wave with dry air far hotter than the human body. It's the, it's the 10th straight day above 105 degrees in, New, in Delhi. All across mm. the West. You know, or it's like... It was another day of oppressive heat. Idaho's having the hottest August on record. Funerals were underway in Karachi on Friday for some of the victims of the scorching heat wave. You know, many people say when you tell them about this, but how, how can that be? You know, they say that the average warmth, it may be one degree centigrade. This is a so-called cooling station in Las Vegas. I say that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is to imagine triple-digit temperatures, the number of really hot days, because each hot day is a hoop you got to jump through. And then just one last dash of interesting in looking at all this, like, fungus temperature stuff. Just as the fungus are learning to jump through our hoops, it turns out we are actually making it easier for them. What do you mean? So there was this paper recently that was talking about how the human body temperature has been declining. 
it's been steadily declining for decades at a rate of like 0.05 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Really? Yeah. So we're not 98.6 anymore? What are we? They think it's actually more around like 97.5. But in fact, Interesting. What do you get that a lot when you measure your kids? Yeah. I'm always like, oh, you're, you're not, you're not. You're colder. The one thing that the researchers were talking about, though, in the declining is that they looked at Western records. But, you know, they say, well, they did a small study on people in Pakistan, and they were more around 98.6. And the researchers were talking about how, essentially how hard your body has to work to stay healthy, and consequently the healthcare system that you're in is what is, like, affecting the temperature decline. So I don't think they think it's, like, worldwide. I think it's, a it's like, a developed country, Western kind of thing. I see. So in countries where there's more advanced health care, you're going to see internal body temps start to lower. Basically, yeah. Wow. So essentially, in sum, <laughs> there is, you know, this head-to-head between fungus and us, and... It is a very fine line going from being insignificant to, you know, king or queen of the castle. Many organisms that you recover from the environment can only grow at environmental temperatures. But some of them have a whole range of temperature susceptibilities or temperature resistance. That's a better way, an easier way to put it. And some of them happen to, their maximum happens to be just below your temperatures. And these are the ones that we worry about because many of them may have the capacity to cause disease, but they cannot do it because they cannot survive the higher temperatures. Wait, what are the other ones that are just below my 98.6? Well, there are probably, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be alarmist, but there are probably in the, in the, in the, um, in the hundreds of thousands <laughs> or even in the millions. I don't <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be alarmist either, but now I want to know what's like what's like marching at my heels. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's just so weird. Like, out of all the things that climate change can do to me, I was not thinking about, like, it's warming up microbes on the sidewalk. And they're like, ah, oh, finally, I can crawl into a human. <laughs> <laughs> this is the moment we've been waiting for for millions of years. It's some image, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, Molly, um, thank you, I guess, for just giving me one more thing to have nightmares about. Sure. Um, I am always happy to seed your fears. <laughs> this story was, of course, pr- reported by Molly Webster, produced by Molly with Bethel Hopte, production help from Tad Davis. Special thanks to Luisa Ostrowski. Until next time, I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Katie from Boulder, Colorado. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abmurad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Thor and Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habsey, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Tobin Lowe, Annie McEwen, Latif Nassar, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Shima Oliali, Sarah Sandbach, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.
Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.